Welcome to the Hands in Motion podcast, brought to you by the American Society of Hand Therapists. Here we will discuss all things upper extremity therapy, from assessment to treatment, the latest research, the patient experience, and other topics related to the field of upper extremity rehab. Learn more and subscribe today at ASHT.org. Welcome back to Hands in Motion and to our second episode in our Upper Extremity Prosthetic Series. On this episode, we are joined by Dwight Putnam, a certified prosthetist that works at a pediatric hospital in Texas. He brings a unique perspective to his job now as a prosthetist, as he previously worked as a professional sculptor. In his job, he works with kids born with congenital hand differences, and he builds terminal devices that allows these kids to participate in the activities that are meaningful to them. Well, welcome, Dwight. We're so excited to have you on the podcast. I know you fairly well, but Stephanie doesn't and our listeners don't. Why don't you tell us just a little bit about yourself? My name is Dwight Putnam. I'm a certified prosthetist. I work at Texas Scottish Rite Hospital in Dallas. I've been down there 16 years this spring. My practice consists of 50% lower extremities, but also the other 50% is going to be creative upper extremity devices. Like I said, I've been down there about 16 years, and so it's one of those situations where they'll definitely have to kick me out before I'm ready to go, I think. I'll be the old man in a wheelchair because the work really is pretty inspirational. And the kids that I work with are an amazing population. I'm constantly inspired by my patients. To be one of the few people who actually enjoys getting up to go to work in the morning, I don't take that for granted. I feel like it's my destiny to be there and to be making the devices that I make. I do have a unique perspective in the sense that I got my start when I went to Austin College up in Sherman, Texas, and thought I was going to be a doctor. 15 minutes of organic chemistry in my junior year. That kind of turned that situation up on end. I realized that uh, I wasn't going to be a doctor. And so on my way home to call my parents to tell them I changed my major, I passed the art building where they were soliciting for art majors. There was the universe speaking to me. <laughs> I needed a major. They needed students. I'd always been sort of creative, but not really focused on art. Art had never really even been on my radar. I ended up with an art degree and was a commercial sculptor for 11 years and found my way through various jobs into prosthetics. It was just cool to be able to apply my artistic background in a functional way and create devices that allow people to do some pretty awesome things. I'm a pretty happy guy because of it. We have that in common that organic chemistry kept us from being physicians. When I found out that that was a requirement, I too veered a different direction. So I <laughs> understand that. <laughs> yeah, a roommate who was a genius had been totally carrying me the first two years through all of that stuff. And just 15 minutes in on my junior year, I just looked at him. I was like, sorry, man, <laughs> this is not going to work. You're out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So I know you said earlier that 50% of your practice is lower extremity, but that other percentage is upper extremity. What does that consist of? What sort of devices are you fabricating? Probably about 80% of my patients, my friends there are congenital. So you're dealing with kids with some brachydactyly, syndactyly, polydactyly, some radial dysplasia, ulnar dysplasia, focamelia. A lot of that comes through. Fortunately, the hand clinic upstairs basically adopted me since day one and taken me under their wing as far as helping me create a permanent place for myself at the hospital. 
they have the weekly clinics. And so I never really know what my week's going to look like. I never really know what the patient's going to look like. It's cool in our system because our system is set up to absorb the costs of any of the devices for upper extremity. So I don't ever really have to worry about compensation or trying to get any of that stuff taken care of, which in the outside world is a huge issue. Trying to get insurance companies to pay for these amazing devices is pretty much a struggle. And I know that places that focus on that end up having full-time staff who it's nothing but their job to deal with denials from insurance companies, which is always pretty crazy. But anyway, I never know what my week is going to look like, and I never know what my patients are going to look like. The point I was getting to is I've got carte blanche for any of these kids that come through. But what the hospitals figured out, the kids with the congenital differences are wired for success with what they've got and that they're able to figure out compensation strategies if you just give them the time and space to get into any activity that they want to get into. And if they can't, then that's where I come in. I'm able to fill in those gaps and create devices that allow these kids to do anything from competitive fishing to musical instruments, riding a bike, jumping rope. Some of the things that a lot of people would probably take for granted, but we know are huge parts of growing up and key milestones in kids' lives is to be able to participate and keep up with their friends and do all the stuff that they want to do. The industry is so developed that you've got all kinds of terminal devices to look at. And so you're able to go to the vendors and find any activity you could possibly think of. In a lot of cases, you're able to get the terminal device for that specific activity. My job is to create the interface between that terminal device or the activity adapter and the kid's limb. It really depends on how much limb there is and what exactly they're wanting to do. But I've got a variety of solutions that I could look at as far as options for different kinds of prostheses. As an artist, which is my background, to have that ability to meld your hands into the work that you're doing and actually create some really cool devices. And at the end of the day, knowing that device and all of your energy and love that you're putting into this thing is just going to go towards an amazing kid. And you're going to be able to get some really cool feedback from that. To have that opportunity on a daily basis, it's helped me to be in a more gracious state, practicing gratitude on a constant basis. To be inspired again, like I said earlier, by the kids you work with, it's life-changing for sure. Would you mind explaining what exactly the interface is that you're developing? I didn't go specific on that because there's a variety of different ones. If a kid, for example, comes in with symbrachydactyly, they have a little bit of a palmer element. They've got some nubbins, but not really a thumb. And they're wanting to hold a pom-pom or they're wanting to do a different activity. I can choose from a variety of different platforms to make that happen. Some of it's thermoplastics, some of it's silicone, that sort of stuff. And again, really depending on how much of the kid's limb is left or that they have, that they're functioning with, will dictate what style or what materials I use. Because the more prosthesis there is, the more weight there is. And so we're always having to cut back on the weight and make sure that that's as super light as possible. But sometimes... If they have a lot of limb, like I said, with symbrachydactyly, you don't need much. You just need something there at the end that does whatever it is they're wanting to do, like holding a drumstick or something like that. So I'm able to actually create that device out of silicone where I first would sculpt a model out of wax and then go through a molding process and inject silicone in there. And I'm able to come up with a glove type of device that the kid slides on and it holds on through suction. And it has a specific shape built in that it grabs onto like a drumstick or a guitar pick or whatever. And so you're able to create a very simple but elegant device. And sort of that's where the artistic side of it comes in is being able to manipulate the wax 
and then do the molding processes and the coloration of the silicone and that sort of stuff. That's definitely where I've created a niche. One of the jobs that I did before I worked at the hospital was to work as a silicone technician, creating super realistic limbs, ears, nose, hands, fingers, and that sort of stuff. And so I picked up a lot of knowledge there. And as I went to grad school, I was able to go there to the hospital and focus not only my sculpting stuff, but also my silicone stuff onto a whole new focus of patients and be able to really apply my energy to a positive outcome. That again is life-changing and constant state of gratitude for the hospital because they totally appreciated me straight away and created a way for me to stay. And so they've done nothing but support me. Thanks so much for explaining that because that will give our listeners a better understanding of where you're coming from, even with the artistic part of it. That was really helpful. Thank you. Absolutely. Well, I want to go back to something else that you mentioned. And I have the opportunity to work with kids that are born with congenital hand differences. And I get to see this. But you mentioned that these kids are wired for success. So they are born without fingers, without maybe even an entire hand. And so you're speaking to the fact that you're making a lot of these devices that they can be a cheerleader, they can be a tennis player, they can play the violin, they can do all these things that their peers are doing. And you mentioned very activity-specific ones, but you didn't really mention traditional terminal devices, body-powered arm, or for some of these kids. Is that something that you're doing as well? Or do you find that kids aren't using these as often as we see in adults? I'm still doing the traditional. I definitely do body-powered. Just trying to figure out what level you're dealing with. If it's a transradial, for example, you would definitely go with a more traditional route with a locking liner, a laminated socket with a wrist unit that has the ability where you can plug in multiple terminal devices. We don't do too many myoelectrics at the hospital. They used to have a room down in prosthetics that's now Don's office that was filled with rejected upper extremity devices. No lie, for the first time as a resident, I walked into this room and there was just standing closets full of these crazy devices, both myoelectric and body powered, that you can tell People spent some serious, serious time on, and here they were. The patient brought them back and was like, nah. So they stopped and took a real hard look at what they were doing as far as how early they were fitting these kids. And they basically would just let the kids pick their own destiny. It's the pick your own destiny book. And whatever you want to do, if you want a myoelectric, you got to work for it. You got to start out with a passive to see if you're going to wear it. And then we put them on a program of sorts. If you come back to me in a year and prove to me that this is something that you're going to stick with, you know, we'll keep increasing the technology. If you go through the point where we make you a body-powered prosthesis and you come back and show me mastery of that, then sure, we'll spend some time on a myoelectric. But most of the time, most of the kids don't make it past the body-powered prosthesis. They're always a little bit too slow, too heavy. They're able to do most of what they can do with their other arm as well, or lack of arm, and do it quicker and, to their mind, more efficiently. You can't really argue with the user. We don't do a whole lot of myoelectrics. It's not to say that the kids don't use them, but it's just not what we do currently. And that might change over a number of years. All kinds of interesting technologies going on with like 3D printing and CAD CAM machines. A lot of that stuff is becoming a little bit more accessible price-wise. The large majority of kids, they'll start out with activity-specific devices, and they'll even continue the activity-specific devices, but they won't necessarily want to move on to the body-powered because 
they're doing great. They're doing fine with what they've got and the tools, the need for the body powered. If you're going to have all the different activity specific devices, most of my patients probably operate 90% of the day without their prosthesis and would only use it for whatever sports or activities they're into. They operate as they are with their limb as it is in public, which I think is awesome. I know you had mentioned that usually coverage for these devices is there. With the children growing, how often do you have to make larger prosthesis as they're getting older and their limbs are growing? Usually you can get about 15 to 18 months out of a limb. You can definitely do some adjustment as the kid grows. The lower limb is definitely only 15 months, but the upper extremity doesn't get used quite as much. And so kids are able to prolong the life of the prosthesis simply because it is a focused use item and they only use it for a certain percentage of the day. That extends the life as well. You also do a little bit of anticipation of growth into the design and fitting of the device so that the material will give and stretch. Or if a kid's wearing a liner, you would put a sock over the liner and then cast him. And then that way, if he gets any larger, he can just take the sock off and not have to worry about the liner when he puts the prosthesis on. It's just a way to anticipate the growth of the kid. You spoke to how you would do wax molding and a little bit of the process, but take us through start to finish. When you get that consult to hand clinic that says, hey, we've got a kid that we want you to meet. They want to do X, Y, and Z. What is the process for you, that initial conversation with them and conversation with the family? And what does that look like with their visits coming to you and you making it? What does that look like start to finish? Most of my referrals upper extremity-wise will come in from the hand clinics, which I think are Tuesday and Thursday every week. And they'll identify them upstairs, and then they send orders down, and they'll come down to see me. And basically, that starts out as just a physical evaluation, looking at the kid's residual limb, getting a feel for the kid and his family, seeing what they want to do, and making sure that the expectations are realistic because sometimes people can go online and get into the wormhole of prosthetics and what they think they need their prosthesis to look like. Most of the time, people are pretty realistic and we're able to provide some of the stuff that they see online, but there's other stuff that you have to make sure that they understand what they're going to be getting. And again, you physically evaluate the limb, make sure that they've got some good strength, good range of motion, and then you would take a cast of them. And we do traditional plaster cast, plaster tape, And we also do alginate casting, where basically just alginate in a bucket and we'll have the kid put his hand or his arm down into the bucket. And it does a really nice negative mold of the kid. And then we're able to fill either one of those with plaster. When we're done, we have a plaster model of the kid's limb. We take off all the other tape and all the alginate or whatever. And we've got a nice three-dimensional shape of the kid's limb. And from there, depending on what material we use, We use that as the basis to build the socket. And then we're able to create a variety of different devices. It depends on what level the kid has. If it's a silicone device, then I'll end up fabricating it myself. And a lot of that is we're actually sculpting around the positive model of the kid's limb. And you're creating the shape of whatever it is you're wanting it to hold on to. And then you do a three-part mold, lose the wax and then inject silicone into the mold. And then when it cures, you're able to pull it off. And there's a glove in there that's ready to fit on the kid's limb. For example, I was working on symbrachydactyly for a bicycle. 
it just had his hand and it has the rubber part and out here it has a c shape like the grip of a bike for the bike handle so he's able to sort of push that on i was able to create that shape in wax do the three-part mold and right now it has red silicone in the mold and i'll pull it out tomorrow and boil it for a while and then clean it up and then when i'm done i'll have a really sharp looking red bicycle adapter for a kid with some brachydactyly and if it's a little bit more complex i have a team of technicians that work with me that are able to create whatever i need to have created teamwork makes the dream work definitely especially there all the support that i get from both departmentally and the hospital what would you say might be the most outlandish or requests that you had to think the hardest on? Like a kid comes to you and says, I want to do this. And your brain had to really, really work. <laughs> I got it instantaneously. I had a patient who has no arms, literally shoulder dysartic bilaterally. He wants to be able to ride a bike. He does everything with his feet. He was sitting there feeding me popcorn with his feet in my initial evaluation. We were great friends pretty much instantaneously and just watching him function. He did everything with his feet. He came in and shook my hand with his foot. He came in. The family said he wanted to learn how to ride a bike. Grandma had done some research and had seen a girl up at Gillette Hospital that had a similar diagnosis, and they had created this TLSO contraption with straps that connected to the brace. And so she leaned back and twisted her shoulders with training wheels, of course, and a helmet, of course. <laughs> oh, good. Safety first. But Safety first. <laughs> they're able to actually ride their bike and control which way they go. And so for him, with no arms, I called him up and they walked me through the process. I got together with Mackenzie Kemp, who is one of our very smart young CPOs, and she scanned him for me and helped me figure out the strap system. And we've improved their ideas and added our own and ended up with this low profile chest thermoplastic piece that he would wear that had two straps on each arm. One was here and the other one was down here, but they both led to the handlebars. And we were able to connect that to the handlebars. And so he's riding instantaneously right there in the hallways of the hospital. He's got his helmet on, he puts his jacket on, he leans back, and he's just like, whoo, he's off to the races. <laughs> <Took off. laughs> yeah, and absolutely. And you can see when he turned a corner, and you're just like, this oh my is goodness, my job. oh my goodness. <laughs> this is my job. I got paid for that. I'm constantly in situations like that where I can't believe that I'm making stuff for these kids. It's just crazy to watch it be used and realize that all your efforts are worth that moment of gold. What's the most common that you get asked about? Athletic training is a big one. A lot of weightlifting, a lot of circuit training and push-ups. I do a lot of transradials and a lot of symbrachydactyly, really short partial hands. Those are probably the two largest that I see for whatever reason. I'm working with a kid right now who has bucked the system and bucked the odds. He was a traumatic transhumeral. And his attitude has just been amazing from the beginning. When I first talked to him, he was like, what kind of prosthesis do you want? And he was like, I want a myoelectric. We had that conversation about you're going to adapt so well without a prosthesis that it's not as big of a deal to get a myoelectric at this point as you think it is. And so we walked him back a little bit and told him that if he would do the body power work, come in and show us that this is an everyday thing and that you use it and you're functional with it then we'll go to myoelectric and his recovery goal. And it's just been so intense. It's been cool to watch. 
only one probably that I have that's a religious transhumeral body powered user because he wants that myoelectric so bad. <laughs> I'm starting to think already that I need to start practicing my casting techniques because <laughs> this kid totally came out of nowhere to watch him use a body powered conventional prosthesis and get the mastery down. It's pretty awesome. Definitely, they keep me on my toes technologically wise. I know that I'll end up having to fit him and myoelectrics is a whole other ball of wax. Yeah, you're going to have to go find all those that y'all put in Don's office or (laughs) I guess took out of what became Don's office. Actually, they're in two cargo containers in my garage now. So it's. (laughs) Well, there you go. You can practice at home. Throw them away, man. Those things were history. I was like, oh. We need a macabre museum somewhere to donate them to. Well, speaking of history, now we can look forward. You mentioned earlier to 3D printing. What are some of those changes or advances? Yeah, advances <laughs> in the technology that's happening in your field. We see some of it happening in hand therapy. How is that also playing into your field? A lot, actually. You're seeing a lot more single-digit articulation in the myoelectrics. They have up to 12 grasp patterns now inside of a single hand, which is pretty awesome. They also have body-powered fingers. And so now for the first time in ever, probably, the actual distal digits are being dealt with and they're being fit with prostheses that restore function and they're actually functional body-powered finger prostheses. I've worked with them as well. And so it's cool to see that the industry is starting to recognize the needs of some of the more complex fittings and the potential of partial hand fittings and body-powered stuff at that level has been pretty cool to watch. It always starts out at an adult level and sort of trickles down to the pediatrics. And so it's just now sort of getting down to the level where I can use body-powered fingers on my patients. It's cool to be able to use that and have that as a resource because for the last handful of years, the partial hand stuff hasn't been available on the market for kids. And so that's been cool to watch and see that open up. I know we've been talking a lot about just functional prosthesis. Do you ever have requests for just the cosmetic prosthesis? We don't get too many cosmetic requests for below elbows. There's an amazing group that we work with called Artec Laboratories out in Midlothian. And so for the older kids that are probably anywhere from 14 up, if they have a request for a cosmetic device like a hand or a foot, we'll refer them to that company. Those guys do amazing work. For the younger kids, I'm able to do a basic silicone foot or basic silicone hand with a industry-available cosmetic glove that slides over the prosthesis, and it still provides that visual camouflage, more or less. I'll provide those up to, like I said, about 14. And once they get to the point where it's a little bit more important, if they're still asking for it, then we'll shoot them over to Artec. And those guys do some amazing work as far as creating super realistic silicone restoration prostheses at any level. I would think your artistic background helps with that as well. Even just what you mentioned earlier about making ears and noses and whatnot. You make some beautiful things. (laughs) One of the best parts of my job is that I'm able to use all of my background to focus it on positive outcomes. And that's just been a huge bonus in my life to have that as a part of my job. I'm the only one at the hospital that does it. That's another thing that's kind of cool. I've been there for 16 years. And so now 
when kids are coming down from the hand clinic, I know that they're coming down to see me because the hand clinic loves me and believes in what I'm doing. And so it's cool to feel that, that all of my hard work has definitely manifested itself in an amazing, positive environment where I'm totally supported by the administration, the physicians, all the way down to my colleagues. I can't think of a better place to work. I still can't believe it's been 16 years feels like just yesterday, but then I see <laughs> pictures of myself 16 years ago. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> oh, my God. Where is time gone? <laughs> it's so meaningful for these kids, too. That's such a big part of my job, Stephanie's job, that functional aspect for whoever our patient is and making sure that it's meaningful, the activities that we're doing, the exercises that we're doing, getting our patients back to meaningful activities. And for these kids that are born without a hand or an arm or fingers or whatever it might be, the hand that they were born with, they see their peers doing all these different activities and they want to be involved too. And you're giving them an opportunity. You're almost leveling that playing field, giving them something to do weightlifting or even just doing push-ups with their peers or even just to the sport-specific activities. And that's so meaningful for these patients, for them to be able to be involved and be right there with their peers. While I know that the hospital appreciates you, I appreciate you and what you've done for patients when I've had a chance to work with you. And I know that your patients too are so grateful for that and their parents as well. And you see that on their faces when you see a kid riding down the hallway with no arms and everybody's going, wait a minute, what's happening here? (laughs) But it's so meaningful for everyone involved and to see that kid doing what he's supposed to be doing. He's supposed to be riding a bike at that age and he's able to do that because of a device that you've made. Oh, thank you for that. That's very gracious. Like I said, I'm in a constant state of gratitude to be in the situation that I'm in and being able to provide the services that I provide and not have to worry about the cost of the device. I recognize as a prosthetist, I'm spoiled, but I'm even more spoiled as an artist. They love me for being an artist and encourage that aspect in me and use my uniqueness to their advantage. And so I definitely appreciate, 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 (laughs) as well as the friendship. I've made along the way. It's a good place to be and an even better place to be a prosthetist. Well, thank you for joining us and sharing with us what you do and highlighting this incredible opportunity you have to support these kids and allow them to be kids and to do what kids are supposed to do and get to do. So thank you for joining us. And we really appreciate you taking the time. Absolutely. My pleasure. And thank you both for your time. Y'all have a great evening. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Hands in Motion brought to you by the American Society of Hand Therapists. You can listen on the ASHT website and or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, including Apple, Google, Amazon Music, and Spotify. Once subscribed, please rate and review the podcast to help us reach new listeners and to continue offering valuable, relevant content. You've been listening to Hands in Motion, brought to you by the American Society of Hand Therapists. To learn more about ASHT and to subscribe to the show, please visit ASHT.org. We'll see you next time on the Hands in Motion podcast.